Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Sabine Howard from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. In this episode, we talk to Nobel laureate Gerald Edelman, who is the founder of the Neurosciences Institute in California. He presents his theory of neural Darwinism and the brain-based devices which are working away to prove its consistency. He'll tell us how these brain-based devices have been learning and instantiating episodic memory as they drive around in their scientific monastery. Finally, remember Descartes' I think, therefore I am? Well, what if consciousness wasn't so abstract? What if you could analyze it using today's science and perhaps in the future embedded into a conscious artifact? Hi, Gerald. Welcome to Talking Robots. Thank you. In the late 1980s, you published a book on neural Darwinism, the theory of neuronal group selection. So what is this theory? Well, actually, the theory was first published in 1978 by MIT Press in a book called The Mindful Brain. It was then amplified in 1989 in a book called Neural Darwinism, The Theory of Neuronal Group Selection. So in order to explain this theory, I have to say what the basis of its background is. The basis is that each individual brain is unique and very variable, and secondly, that no two signal sets are ever received by the same brain twice. That causes a problem for any computer model of the brain. So let me go back and say, what are the data? First of all, there are genes that control whether you have a human brain or a monkey brain. But shortly after that control in development, uh, neurons that fire together wire together. That means that in each individual animal, whatever is happening to that animal uh, alters the way the wiring occurs at the finest level. This is called epigenetic control. It's beyond the genes. And then when the anatomy is formed, then neurons, again, that f fire together are strengthened and others are weakened in a pattern that's unique to each individual. So the theory says that there's a period of developmental selection in which variation occurs enormously during development. And then after the anatomy is mostly formed, there is still variation at the strength of the connections between the nerve cells or neurons called the synapses. In order to coordinate all of this, the third tenet besides developmental selection and experiential selection is this idea of reentry. And that is a somewhat hard idea. The idea is that uh, there are massively parallel connections going in both directions between parts of the brain, particularly its maps. And what happens is that signals that come to one spot return back across these massively parallel connections to the other spot. The example I can give is a little like this. Imagine a string quartet in which each player plays his own willful tune. But then if you connect all the players up with fine threads, hundreds of thousands of them, then their movements will tend to coordinate them. And uh, given this theory, developmental selection, experiential selection, and reentry, you are abandoning the idea of the brain as a computer. When you abandon that idea, you've given up the idea of a clock, you've given up the idea of logic, 
and therefore you have to coordinate things in space and time, and that's what reentry does. So that is the theory of neural Darwinism. In one of your great interviews on People's Archive, you, you say that this theory can be proved, but what you can do is develop models which can prove that this theory is at least self-consistent. Do you have examples of such models? Yes, indeed. Of course, it's true of any scientific theory that there's no way of disprove, no way of proving it, but there are ways of disproving it. Certainly in physics, that's proven to be the case. Imagine uh, phlogiston as a theory of burning and oxidation compared to what Lavoisier found. So we have at the Neurosciences Institute worked up a whole number of models. First of all, to test the idea of reentry, we have simulated in supercomputers uh, connections that are very similar to that of the cerebral cortex of your brain. Let me say a moment uh, something about the cerebral cortex. If I undid your cerebral cortex and laid it out on a table, it would be the size of a large table napkin. It would be about as thick. It would have 30 billion nerve cells or neurons and 1 million billion connections. If you counted one connection per second, you just finished counting 32 million years later. And that's just counting them. Looking at all the combinations make, makes for hyper-astronomical numbers, much larger than the number of particles in the universe. Now, in order to test the theory, we had to put in uh, models that represented the cortex in terms of its anatomy and its connections. Of course, these models were impoverished in terms of numbers. At best, they had millions of connections, not billions. But nonetheless, we could show that as long as we had the idea of reentry and put in independent signals, it would be spatio-temporally coordinated in its input and output so that synchronous connections made for specific outputs of a certain kind. Then we constructed a series of models to check for the existence of neuronal groups. The theory actually is called the theory of neuronal group selection, and that is the idea that you don't just select single neurons. Neurons come in two flavors, excitatory and inhibitory, and what you have to do is select for groups of those. So just imagine a huge repertoire of variations inside the brain and a bunch of events that occur that have nothing to do with how those variations really were made. But then when these events enter as inputs, certain of the maps or the variations are selected over others and reinforced according to their synapses, and others are weakened. And that is how you get around the problem of spatio-temporal co correlation having given up uh, a clock in logic. At the Neurosciences Institute, you've been embedding these uh, brain models into physical devices with simulated nervous systems, or brain-based devices, BBDs. Um, so first of all, what are these brain-based devices? Well, let me say first of all what the rationale is. The rationale continues on my answer to your previous question, namely, can we simulate what happens in the brain? Well, the first thing you have to recognize is the brain is not in a vat. It's not alone. The brain is in the body. It's embodied. And the body and the brain are both embedded in the environment. And it's the trio that counts. It's the inputs from the environment and the body and the inputs to the brain and outputs of the brain to the body through to the environment that really count. Now, the important issue is this. If the brain is not a computer, how do you justify that? Well, a computer is a Turing machine, as shown by Alan Turing, the brilliant British mathematician. 
a finite state or automaton, as they call it, with instructions and an endless tape, which can write zeros and ones on the tape. What what uh, Turing showed is that uh, whatever computer you make, as long as there are effective procedures or algorithms, he can construct a universal Turing machine, according to this theorem, that will represent the same thing. Now, if if that's not true of the brain, why is it not true? Well, the reason is this, that the environment is not a piece of coded tape. So the combination of the environment and the brain and the body together do not constitute a Turing machine because the environment is not a piece of tape. It's, in fact, not unambiguous as to what an individual animal receives. Taking that into account at the Institute, we have built devices which try to incorporate as closely as possible the anatomy and the dynamics of the firing of the neurons in a brain, a vertebrate brain usually, and we embed that in a device like a robot, but it's not an ordinary robot. It's not a robot run by artificial intelligence. And the reason we embed it in the robot is there is no real way generally of simulating the environment without cheating. An example is this, one of our early Darwin automata, we call them after the great man, Charles Darwin. Uh, Darwin III was simulated both in terms of the environment, the brain, and the body. And yes, it learned, and we could follow its learning through watching its synapses, etc., etc. But we realized that what we were doing is having inputs to this simulated animal, if you will, with its brain, that are in fact already pre-decided. For example, we sent squares and bumpy shapes and whatever. But that didn't take account of the fact that it's the brain that makes up the idea of a square. It is the brain that gives you the input and transfers it because the brain is uh, perception in the brain is context dependent. It's not independent of what's going on. So we decided to put these things into robot-like devices, and those are brain-based devices. We have already succeeded in showing that such devices, although not living, can in fact learn in terms of classical conditioning, operant conditioning, and even do uh, secondary conditioning. For example, we could condition one such device, Darwin 7, to recognize by tasting, as it were, blocks of steel that had stripes, meaning good taste, and blobs, meaning bad taste. Of course, those assignments were arbitrary. But all on its own, uh, Darwin 7 would select stripes and avoid blobs after some experience. There's one ingredient I've left out, and that is that while those really are unique to each individual Darwin, the fact is that there's something that comes from evolution itself, and that is the value systems of the brain that say that a certain taste is good, whereas another taste is bad. Of course, all of this is arbitrary when we actually do the models. The beauty of this approach is that while each individual robot-like device uh, solves the problem in its own way. The fact is we can trace every single event inside the brain as it learns and during its learning. And concretely, what do the Darwin devices look like? Well, they all differ uh, because, of course, that's the thing. The body of animals differs, and the body really matters in your brain. I'll give you an example a little later. Uh, so the ones that we look like look a bit like R2-D2 in the movies. They have a, a base which is mobile. 
They have two microphones for ears. They have a camera for eyes, a CCD camera. They have a, a gripper at the bottom, right close to the floor, which can encompass a device by closing its jaws around it and measuring its conductance, which is equivalent to taste. Now, all of this goes into the nervous system of the device. And so we feel that, that that's a very good advance on making intelligent machines. Indeed, most recently, we've been able to construct devices that look the same way, but which also have whiskers. And these devices can ha carry out episodic memory. Episodic memory is a memory of the what, the where, and the when in your life, for example. Uh, not just semantic memory of, of things, but actually events in sequence. And we've been able to incorporate a model of the hippocampus, which bilaterally in your brain is responsible for converting short-term to long-term memory. And actually, we could show that these devices could uh, find their way in the environment according to what they remembered of sequences of inputs of a visual kind. So, so far, we've been able to check the learning by conditioning and also long-term memory, which gives you uh, positions in space. Positions in space, by the way, are measured in our sequence by what people do with rats, uh, according to what's called the Morris water maze. If you take a rat and you place him in milky water where there's a hidden platform, the rat really doesn't like that water and will search around until it finds the platform. But it will remember the sequences of what its eyes told it on the walls of the surround. And the next time you put the rat in the thing, it will go straight to the platform, even though it can't see it in the milky water. Well, we've done that in a dry water maze with Darwin 10, which is the first of our hippocampal models, and it works very well indeed. In fact, if you take the platform away, it keeps searching for it in that region of the playpen. Let's look at consciousness now. I especially enjoy your scientific approach to the understanding of consciousness. Uh, tell us how you've gone about studying this process. Well, the first thing you have to, to ask is what, is what are the properties of consciousness? And the most important initial description, extensive description, can be attributed to William James, who wrote this classic book called The Principles of Psychology, in which he defined consciousness. He said, consciousness is a form of awareness. It is continuous, but endlessly varying. It, is, uh, it has the property, so-called, of intentionality, which is it always refers to something. That's an idea of Franz Brantano, a German uh, psychologist, uh, who pointed out that, that consciousness always refers to things. But it does not, according to James, exhaust everything. It goes according to attention. So now the main thing that James uh, stressed is that consciousness is not a thing. That's a mistake people make all the time. It is a process. So now here is this field of study, which belonged to the philosophers up to recently, certainly up to 1950, I would say, something of that order. And now it's become possible to investigate it by scientific means. The question is how? Well, the first thing you have to recognize is you have to have a clear-cut idea of what, process, what the process uh, means. The central problem that people have stumbled on has to do with what's called qualia, 
the idea of the redness of red, the warmness of warmth, or even the whole notion of how you're aware of the entire room about you. All these qualia uh, seem to be so completely different than the neural activities that we believe generate them that there's a what, what philosophers call an explanatory gap. Well, uh, we have taken two approaches to the whole idea of consciousness. The first is to base a theory of consciousness based on neural Darwinism. Uh, and second of all, to try to look for experimental verifications of the predictions. This is not unusual in any uh, biological investigation, except it's particularly difficult to investigate consciousness um, uh, as contrasted with things like perception and psychophysics. Well, let me say what the theory is. The theory states that uh, actually what consciousness evolved for, for is not itself selected by evolution. It is the nerve cells in a part of your brain called the thalamocortical system. So I now have to deviate and tell you what that's about. I already described the cerebral cortex. The cortex is connected to itself by a huge web of corticocortical connections, but it's also connected to a way station about the size of the end of your thumb called the thalamus, which actually registers and filters all inputs to the cortex except those for smell. Now, the thalamus and the cortex are connected by huge numbers of reentrant connections, and so are the corticocortical fibers of the brain. The theory that we have been developing states that what happened in evolution perhaps 250 million years ago is a new set of reentrant connections connected the back of the cortical system to the front, which has to do with memory. And that, that reentrant connection between the back and the front of the brain enabled an animal to create an enormous number of discriminations. And the theory, and this is a very important point, the theory states that qualia are those discriminations. Now, there are in endless philosophical thickets we have to go through. Perhaps we can put that off to your next question. But that is the idea, that consciousness depends upon reentry. And uh, we have actually tested this. Um, what we did is we used magnetoencephalography. Magnetoencephalography is carried out by a device involving superconducting quantum interference devices, which can measure minute magnetic uh, fields that accompany the electrical activity of neurons. And it's non-invasive. You put a web of 148 of these electrodes around a person's head, put them in a shielded room, and here is the experiment that we conducted. We reasoned that it would be interesting to sort of use a signal that would go into the brain, but about which sometimes you would not be conscious, whereas on other times you would be conscious. So we used a vertical red bar and a horizontal blue bar going into your brain through a blue lens in one eye and a red lens in the other so that the blue lens does not see the red and the red lens does not see the blue, but your brain sees both, whether you're conscious or not. We then figured out that uh, because of that, the brain is unable, the cortical system, a visual system of the brain, is unable to integrate these two signals together. So what happens is called binocular rivalry. 
you first see a red vertical bar, and then maybe two to three seconds later, you see a blue horizontal bar, but never both at the same time in your consciousness. At the same time, of course, both are going into your visual brain, and so all we needed then to do is to say, how could we connect this signal for each of these bars to its specific neural responses that we're measuring with these magnetic currents? Uh, what we did then is utilize something we call a frequency tag. We, did, we oscillated the intensity of the red bar at one frequency and the intensity of the blue bar at another. And lo and behold, what we found in the brain responses was a huge spike with a high signal-to-noise ratio, a huge spike corresponding to that frequency. For example, 7 hertz, 7 times a second for, say, red, and 9 hertz for, say, blue. At that point, we would be recording from the brain, and it's a well-known fact that you can use mathematical analyses called Fourier analysis to measure the strength of the different parts of the brain over all these electrodes and see what they do. Well, what we found out is no two individuals had the same responses of intensity of the magnetic fields, but they were not just global and smeary. They were very specific, and each individual corresponding to neural Darwinism had a specific kind of fingerprint. But the most exciting thing was this. You can mathematically figure out for distant electrodes whether they are firing synchronously. And so this was a test of reentry. Would it be the the, the case that when the person reported being conscious of, say, a bar, that you would see an explosion of reentry. And that's exactly what we observed, that when you become conscious of an object, there's a massively parallel front-to-back, side-to-side burst of synchronous firing across distant parts of your brain. We think that provides the first step in sort of validating, or at least consistent with this theory that I have uh, described briefly. Do you think we're going towards an implementation of, of conscious robots? Well, of course, uh, that is a projection that will go far beyond my lifetime, but I see no reason. If, if let's, let's, let's go back and let's discuss what the implications are. First of all, the theory that I just talked about, uh, based on neural Darwinism, is a physical theory. It's a naturalistic theory. It says... There's no spookiness here of the kind that Cartesian theories or dualist theories say, namely Descartes, who said the world is divided into two kinds of uh, entities, race extensa, extended things which physics can look at, and race cogitans, thinking things which are not accessible to physics. That means that there's dualism, there's a special spooky domain. This theory that I've talked about rejects this notion and says, no, no, what happens is the firing of the neurons in these complex loops that I've just been talking about inside a cortex and a thalamocortical system particularly, something we call the dynamic core, that firing entails the discriminations which are the qualia. So the most important idea is that. that it's, not, it's not that the neurons cause the uh, qualia and discriminations. They entail them. There's no avoiding them. It's a little bit like saying, well, how come the redness of hemoglobin or the spectrum of hemoglobin is, is caused by hemoglobin? It isn't caused by hemoglobin. It's entailed by its quantum mechanical structure as a molecule. In the same way, this theory says, physically speaking, 
the jittering of the neurons and tails all these various patterns and combinations which have the value of allowing an animal in possession of that uh, virtue to predict and make plans. And that's what consciousness is for. So the question is this. Once we learn the details of this dynamic core, which we don't really know in detail now, once we learn this in detail, there doesn't seem to be any reason why we couldn't embed it in the same way we've already done for perception and for memory in brain-based devices. Well, that's going to be a big deal because it's going to involve millions of neurons and possibly hundreds of millions of synapses. And it has to be, as we believe, embedded in a real body which is exploring the environment on its own. But there's no reason in principle to think that if this theory is correct or close to being correct, that you couldn't build a conscious artifact. Now, that would be a very exciting thing, but there will be many, again, philosophical questions. For example, how would you know it's conscious? For example, I'll ask you, how do you know that your dog is conscious? Yeah, I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know for a robot do, either. Do you believe that the dog is conscious? I think I would. <laughs> yes, I do too, but I can't prove it. I can tell you. I'll come much closer, though, in the experiment I devised and much closer in discussing it with you, if you can report to me under a variety of circumstances while I'm testing and measuring what's going on in the neural correlates of consciousness in your brain. Now, therefore, I feel most confident if I can examine human beings. So there is a real dispute here. If I build a conscious artifact that's sort of like a dog, I'm going to have a little bit of a problem convincing people that it's conscious, although I think if in putting the right combinations together. There's a huge number of discriminations or distinctions that have burst out after I've got this re-entering connection. That would be some evidence for it. But of course, the best evidence would be if somehow there could be some language or exchange of meaningful signals, uh, symbols, between you and the device. That's going to take another kind of development because we don't fully yet understand how to construct a language of that kind. You're also the founder of the Neurosciences Institute, which truly isn't the typical research environments. Can you maybe give us a word on on the architecture and the general feeling of the place? Well, thank you for mentioning it. It's a matter of some passion with me, because I believe that while the Church of Science, which is where I work, uh, I'm not a how do I say I'm not an employee of the institute or what have you, but I'm an I'm actually a professor across the street at the Scripps Research Institute. Uh, I believe that it's important that there be scientific monasteries. By that I mean small places in which there's an enormous degree of freedom for people to develop their ideas. And some time ago, in 1982 specifically, it occurred to me to build such a monastery at the Rockefeller University where I was then professor. And uh, while we worked only on theoretical models of the kinds I've discussed with you, uh, in 1992 or so, we had the opportunity to build in a remarkable setting in La Jolla, California, the Neuroscience Institute as it exists today, which included uh, a beautiful auditorium capable of being a great concert hall, which it is, a a theoretical center, a theory building, and finally, a laboratory set up in which the limiting number of 40 young scientists were allowed to pursue their ideas in a very free fashion. Now, after doing that, I learned from a, 
historian and sociologist of science, uh, Rogers Hollingsworth at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, that the greatest biomedical breakthroughs of the last century, the 20th century, occurred in only three places. They were the early Rockefeller University, the early California Institute of Technology, and Cambridge University and two small colleges in England. And what they had in common is that they were small, they were freely funded, which means that the funding, whether governmental or not, was not politically inspired. And third of all, they were diverse, but not too diverse. To give you an example of two out of the three, in Germany, the Max Planck Institutes had early on a small size, certainly good funding, free funding, but they were very narrow in their focus, whereas these three exemplars were much broader. So without knowing it, I had put together something like that, I guess having been trained at the Rockefeller. And uh, I believe that it's a very nice model to have next to or embedded in all of the big university systems, these small scientific monasteries. So given the fact that La Jolla is a very beautiful place, and that we were very lucky to have this magnificent architecture by Todd Williams and Billy Chen of New York, uh, we have been able to flourish. And uh, if you look at our scientific report, you would see that 40 young scientists can cover as many as 20 different subjects, uh, certainly not in a labor-intensive way, but in a very creative way. The creations have involved, for example, explorations of music in the brain, showing how closely music is related to language, and actually using magnetoencephalography to help. Also, we are the people who have first shown that uh, when you fall asleep, you turn off genes, and when you wake up, you turn them on. And we were the first to show that insects, notably fruit flies, sleep, so we could investigate the genetics of sleep. And so our young people remind me of uh, the story of freedom. I will tell you this if you will forgive me, and that is Wolfgang Pauli, who is one of the great quantum mechanicians, who is a uh, young uh, colleague of Niels Bohr, the great founder of quantum mechanics, one of the great founders of quantum mechanics. Uh, Bohr was visiting the Princeton Institute where Pauli was at the time, and Pauli said, Niels, uh, would you please attend my lecture this afternoon? I'm going to give a really crazy idea. And so Bohr said, sure. He went, and the lecture really bombed. It was rather bad. No one responded. Bohr came up to Pauli, and he said, not crazy enough. And so, in fact, uh, you have to have, at a certain youthful age, in my opinion, the freedom to take on your crazy ideas and see how they go. There's a wonderful uh, essay by Van Hoff, the great physical chemist of Holland, called Imagination in Science. And I believe it's published by Springer Verlag. The fact is that he said he wanted to talk about science as imagination in the service of the verifiable truth. And he wanted to talk about imagination in order to show you that even great scientists can be a little crazy. Okay, let's talk a bit about the future now. What advances should we expect in neuroscience over the next 20 years? Oh, golly. It's very hard to predict the future, even in science. You never know what is going to be a surprising development, right, that changes your mind. Well, I used quantum mechanics as an example just a minute ago. Who would have known that in 1900, 
in trying to deal with the black body radiator that Max Planck would have to come up with the idea of a quantum. So all of classical physics then came tumbling down how to be fixed up. The same is true here, and so we can't really predict in great detail, but I think we will know the following things in a much better way. We've done pretty well at looking at local parts of the brain and even of the human brain to see which ones light up when you have this act or that thought or whatever. But we haven't done quite as well in documenting all the different possible relationships of those incredible cortical-cortical connections and thalamocortical connections. But we are getting better and better at devising techniques that can both look at the overall uh, workings of that system, as well as the individual neurons. So I expect steady progress in that regard. Now, you might ask the question, well, uh, what is the role of modeling in robotics there? And certainly, Dario Floriano and other people in robotics have been doing very important work in recognizing that somehow it's not enough to just sit at your computer terminal, but you have to have a behaving entity which you can analyze. I'll come back to that in a minute. So I think what's going to happen is there's going to be increasing progress in making brain-based devices, even to the point of a conscious artifact, which would be thrilling, wouldn't it? It would be one of the great intellectual achievements in the history of the human race. Um, but also there will be great progress in finding ways in which the brain can compensate for injury. That brings up a very important idea which is central to the theory of neuronal group selection and neurodarwinism, and that is the idea of what's called degeneracy. Degeneracy refers to the fact that completely different structures can give you the same result or effect or output. And degeneracy is a constant property of all biological systems, indeed, of evolution itself. So we're going to be understanding the mathematics of degeneracy and complex systems in a much better way as theorists get to work on these systems. So let me give you one example uh, of how that might develop. When we did our brain-based devices, we could look back after successful conditioning and our successful development of episodic memory. We could look back at each neuron, each impulse, each connection strength, etc., in time. So if we went back after a successful behavior and picked a particular neuron, say, in the hippocampus, and said, okay, let's trace all the neurons that connected to it backwards every 200 milliseconds. Well, by the time we went to six such jumps back to, say, 1.2 seconds back in time in a backtrace, we could see that that single neuron had thousands of possible ways of being connected that were there and that could be chosen. And so that's sort of interesting. That's an example of degeneracy. And its importance is this, that if you block one path, you have all these other paths to sneak through with. And this is a degree of organization that you don't see in ordinary electronic devices, for example. So I think there's going to be great progress in analyzing the networks and the combinations of these interacting systems in a way that we don't yet fully understand now. So that's my prediction. When we do that, of course, we will connect the degeneracy to the defects of the brain and show how the brain can compensate and thus help out in the diagnosis and treatment of disease. And what are the main challenges in neuroscience? I think we've talked about it. The main challenge in my mind would be that if neuroscience could lead us to develop a uh, 
conscious artifact. Now, there's something almost paradoxical about that, isn't there? The sense of it being that, for example, this artifact would not be living, yet would be conscious. Sounds very strange indeed, doesn't it? Um, And then we have a number of really interesting questions. Would it look at the world the same way we do? If if we could examine all of that and intrude upon its workings in a way we can't do ethically with human beings, if we could do that, we could convert the philosophical field of epistemology or the theory of knowledge into an empirical discipline completely. That's be pretty exciting, maybe not as exciting as finding a creature from outer space, but pretty darn close. Let's look at all areas of robotics now. How do you think robotics in general will have had a, an impact on, on everyone's life in the next 20, 50 years? Well, first, it will, as I've tried to imply in my talk, and by the way, I've just put in a paper in a robotics issue of Science Magazine, which is to come out in November 16th, called Learning in and from Brain-Based Devices, a perspective of this field. First of all, we will have that. We will have robotics contributing to brain theory in a very important way because it will be that the robot is embedded in the real world, which is very, very complex. And it's the only way we can really select upon behavior without being almost silly in our reductionist simplicity. So that's the first thing. The second thing, of course, is robots are going to be increasingly uh, scaled. There will be large ones and there will be very small ones. In fact, Floriano has uh, been working on that very issue. And so uh, we will be able to look at that. We will also be able to look at interaction amongst robots in ways that will contribute perhaps to our understanding of symbolic communication. So that's a very big possibility. And the third thing is, of course, in exploring domains which otherwise would be very dangerous. And we already have from NASA that example on Mars, don't we? So there's very great excitement potential in this field, and it's a field that's growing very, very rapidly, and it should. Thanks, Gerald, for being here with us on Talking Robots. Uh, Thank you for your very intelligent questions. I appreciate it. Thank you. This concludes this episode of Talking Robots with Gerald Edelman on neural Darwinism and brain-based devices. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you in two weeks. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.